Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have a hookup for the best table at Tony's Town Square restaurant every night, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a hapless man-cub strolling aimlessly through the jungle, falling into a constant stream of near-death experiences as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our very own Bagheera is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay, Ben. Actually, to be honest, I've got something I need to get off my chest, right? It'll be quick, but I've got something I need to come out with. So I've recently discovered... Mm. something that I should have known about ages ago, right? Something that should have gone in the Last and Legacy section of one of our very first episodes, Pinocchio, and I just need to come out and say it. It'll be quick. Oh, God, you're taking us back to Pinocchio. I'm taking us back to Pinocchio. I'm taking us back to Ben's most hated movie (laughs) we've come across so far, Ben's Unhappy Place, right? Pretty much, yeah. So I found out that in 2000, Disney made a TV movie called Geppetto, telling the story of Pinocchio from Geppetto's perspective. It had all new songs. It had Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the Blue Fairy. And the main thing that I just need to say and let the world know and get it off my chest is that the evil coachman, the guy on Pleasure Island who's turning kids into donkeys and sending them to the salt mines, was played by Usher. 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 As in, yeah, Usher. Exactly, yeah, Usher. It was in the year 2000, I believe it predates Yeah and many of his biggest hits, but he was still a well-known concern in the pop and R&B world, and I'm just, I'm glad that that's out there. I can, I can breathe now. So, so this is an animated film? Is it like no, sort of no, Disney no, no. straight to deep? Wait, what, no, what is it's a live action. It's a live action TV movie starring Usher as the coachman. He's dancing around, he's singing, he's turning kids into donkeys. Drew Carey is Geppetto. Is this on Disney Plus? Is this it's uh, not. widely available? <laughs> Probably for good reason. <laughs> the Usher scenes are on YouTube. Maybe the whole thing's on YouTube, but I watch the Usher scenes on YouTube. Wow. Okay. Well, I feel uh, I, I don't know whether I like that I know this exists or not, but um, listeners, you decide. You decide. How are you feeling about the fact this is our last Bangers era film? It feels like we only just began the Bangers era, and uh, and we're heading out with a. Bangera? Bagheera? No, that's wow. a word, is it? Ouch. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, it's sad to put all of these like classic iconic films behind us and move into slightly more unknown territory, but also that is kind of the stuff I'm really excited to talk about. Like, I was really excited to start talking about the weirdo package movies in the 40s, and I'm really excited to start talking about the odd places that the Disney studio takes us. 
in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, because I know a couple of those films, the ones that are sort of a bit of a hangover, I'd say, of the Bangers era, and not necessarily the full-on Dark Ages, as it's as it's called. But when we get into the full-on Dark Ages stuff, I know none of that. So that's going to be a complete voyage of discovery. But... Before then, we have this final Bangers era movie, and this week, as you can tell, we are once again joined by a special guest, a cool customer who knows all about the bare necessities of life and can often be found down the local park scratching his back on all the trees. <laughs> Welcome to Disneyversity, my fellow film journalist, an OG Disneyversity listener, and all-round great guy, Empire's John Nugent. Ah, hello. Thank you very much. That was a very nice intro. Very happy you didn't to be mind here. the bit about scratching you back on the trees down our <laughs> local park, no? <Nope. laughs> no, that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, although I'm not, I don't have a small child on my chest usually, which is for the best because you don't have yeah. a small child. I don't have a small child. If you child, did, that no. would be very strange. That would just be weird, a weird activity <laughs> to do in a park. But no, I'm very happy to be here. I'm a very enthusiastic student of the Disney University, so a bit behind on my studies, but I'm here to learn and happy to be here. So, what's your history with? Disney movies then? Which Disney films did you grow up on? Do you have a love of Disney overall? What What are your feelings about the whole thing? Yeah, I'm a huge Disney person. I, I mean, I think it's more unusual if you're not really, isn't it? I, I definitely grew up wearing down VHS tapes of films as a kid. Jungle Book was actually a big one for me, but also what you call the banger era, you know, the 60s and 70s ones like 101 Dalmatians and Robin Hood were very big for me. And then the 90s revival stuff as well. I would just watch on a loop, just endlessly. Me and my brother would watch it when we got up in the morning, like every day, these sorts of films. So it's huge. Yeah. And also I I studied film studies at university and one of my modules was animation as well. So, I mean, I've forgotten it all now, but I have got a sort of... <laughs> Very loose, vague academic history with this stuff. But yeah, that's a waste of student fees because I have no idea what, what I learned. In another life, you could have been taught by Dr. Sam Summers. He could I have know, been your, right? Film studies lecturer. Yeah. I don't think I touched on Disney so much, but we did study a bit of American animation. I, it was a lot of Looney Tunes and like the sort of gag narrative, I seem to remember. That's what we were sort of focusing on. But um, no, I love animation. We I, we watched a lot of Pixar as a kid as well. Like Toy Story is one that I think I know pretty much word for word. And it, as I'm sure we'll discuss, like The Jungle Book was a very, like watching it last night was just a sort of weirdly nostalgic thing. There was lots of stuff that I just seem to know innately, like it's sort of encoded in my DNA now. Yeah, I feel like sometimes when you revisit this stuff, especially for the first time in a long, long time, it just sort of unlocks memories, um, just seeing these little sequences or these little moments that you don't really remember and then you see it and it brings it all back to you. So you said Jungle Book was one that you um, wore out the VHS a, a lot. Which other ones in terms of, you mentioned the 90s era as well, how far up did you go to? Because we've been talking throughout the podcast of I think for me the last one really that we had on VHS was like Pocahontas Sam went a bit further up in terms of like Hercules and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame and those films so where where did your Disney era sort of end? Oh, that's a good question I think maybe it's something like The Lion King The Lion King was one that was was pretty rinsed on the old VHS player I think maybe after that Pixar seems to sort of take over and then I sort of started to outgrow it and sort of returned a bit as an adult. 
But it feels like it's always they've always been there. I think even when I was a sort of moody teenager, that I still had a sort of grudging appreciation of it. And uh, yeah, I remember watching a lot of Disney movies as a student. Like there seemed to be a bit of a hangover cure for a few years you know so there's sort of never been a point where they've not been a part of my life and now yeah I talk about them professionally as well so it's sort of slightly I can't get rid of them so you like me it it becomes part of your kind of work life your daily life as well so what are the Disney films that mean a lot to you now are there ones are there more recent ones that you kind of hold close to you are there any others that you didn't really watch as a kid but that are some of your favorite Disney movies these days yeah I mean Fantasia uh, was definitely a big one for me as a kid and yeah I have to say like listening to your podcast and on that episode and then re-watching it as an adult has really like I love any animation that's quite weird and experimental and I mean that is just what a film that is there's something so unique about that I really wish Disney made more films like that these days to be honest because it's just so out there there's just like dots and lines it was really it blew my mind all (laughs) over again watching it as an adult so yeah that's that was a big touch point for me and and I think I remember watching it and being even as a kid like recognizing that they were playing with a form you know that this is very different here what's your favorite segment from Fantasia like are you a Chernobog stan like Sam are you all about the dinosaurs I don't know is it is it a bit basic to say the Sorcerer's Apprentice is that is that a basic thing ah oh, yes a little bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that's totally fine it's a breakout hit for a reason but <laughs> it's fine but it's all about the bog baby it's yeah. all about that bog. Yeah. No, it is very good. I mean, what is the sequence where it is just... Is it the opening sequence where it starts out with the sort of light show and then it turns into sort of abstract? Yeah, to Carter and Fugue in D minor. Carter and Fugue, there you go. Yeah, that's... I, I love the sort of simplicity of that. But yeah, I mean... Yeah, I'm a basic bitch. It's fine. I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> and which other Disney films do you uh, appreciate now as an adult? I'm a huge fan of Aladdin. Not so much the Jasmine uh, love story stuff, which I think is quite cheesy. But I think what they do with the genie in that film is just really remarkable. I think it's so sort of creative and insane and Robin Williams's performance is obviously like a standout so I'm very excited to hear what you guys make of that when you eventually get to it yeah all of the the sort of early 90s stuff I really really enjoy I think The Lion King maybe doesn't get its due I don't know is that considered a big I know it's like a children's classic but is it critically appreciated as much as it should be I don't know. I mean, I think so. I think a lot of Disney films like go up and down in terms of of critical appraisal over time as critics kind of come from different generations. Obviously, I think your guy, you guys are movie critics. Does your generation of critics not respect The Lion King because it's something that they grew up with? See, I I think I have a huge amount of respect for The Lion King, but I wonder if sort of people slightly older than me are like, oh yeah, that was a good Disney film, I guess. Whereas for me, it's like, oh, that is the Disney film. That is like the hugest one from my childhood and that I still kind of hold on to as like pretty much a peak of everything that encompasses uh, Disney animation for me. That's a huge one. But yeah, I wonder if that is different for slightly older critics and probably slightly younger critics as well like people Mm. in their early 20s maybe hold much more affection for something like Hercules I know is a massive one for a lot of people that for me I just have basically no knowledge or conception of and that maybe uh, as they say the Lion King hits different across different (laughs) generations is that a thing that's what the young people say as those early 20s film critics say it's different (laughs) 
So true, Bestie. Um, so, John, <laughs> you said you watched Jungle Book a lot as a kid. So, yeah, what drew you to this one for, for the podcast? Well, weirdly, I could possibly credit, I'm not, I can't 100% verify this, but I can possibly credit the, the Jungle Book for my entire love and appreciation for cinema as a whole. Whoa, okay. Which is a big, Talk us through that. Big claim. So, I'm not sure, and I'm, I don't think my parents know either, but I'm pretty sure this was the first film... I saw on the big screen ever. Wow, amazing. I think there was a re-release of this film in 1992, which would kind of track because I would have been about five around then. I do have a memory of being taken to the cinema by my auntie and watching The Jungle Book and being just overawed, just like totally bowled over. And so, yeah, that set off a, a lifelong appreciation and career for me. And then having it on VHS, I wore it down... I had a Jungle Book themed party at some point, one of my birthday parties. I remember getting the VHS tape and tracing over the cover, like the cover art, and turning that into an invite. Oh, that's awesome. I was like totally obsessed. Uh, And also this probably chimes as well, like, you know, Cub Scouts very intimately like entwined with Kipling and all of this. And uh, I was an enthusiastic Cub Scout and I remember getting very excited at seeing like the Cub Scout leader being called Arkela, although she was, you know, a portly old woman in our village rather than a, <laughs> rather than a, a wolf. But yeah, it was for a long time, it was quite a big deal in my life and I knew it very, very well. Uh, so yeah, revisiting it has been really fun. That's cool. Yeah, I'd say for me, this is a big Travis family favourite. I know my mum loves the Jungle Book and my granddad on my mum's side, Gramps, had the record of the soundtrack that would uh, get played sometimes. And and this is one of the few, Sam, that I have seen more recently. Like, we've come into this podcast and I've realised I've actually barely seen any of these films and the ones that I think I have, maybe I haven't. But this is one that I actually have seen quite recently. It was on telly a couple of years ago around Christmas time and I just kicked back and, and watched it and had a lovely time with it so I'm, I'm excited to dig into this one what about you sam how do you feel about the jungle book yeah this was one of the big ones for me when i was a kid it was one of the, one of the ones that always got worn out one of the ones that i would always ask to watch and one of the ones i knew all the words to it was that the lion king hercules and toy story were probably the ones that i had on vhs that would just stick in all the time and it does have when you come back and watch it now not that i go back and watch it loads it's got a special place in my heart but i don't re-watch it as often as maybe some of the 90s stuff for example but um it does have that weird nostalgic feel and there's something about the music in this that evokes something from my past that just like wrenches me back into this like Anthony going Ratatouille style like flying back <laughs> into my childhood home sitting in front of the TV watching do 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 and all of that music that was really bad whenever I try and recreate music on this it doesn't go well do 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 if you've seen the movie you know what I'm doing yeah, if you haven't yeah. that's that's not accurate <laughs> I appreciate the effort but anyway that is enough from us We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the Arthurian adventures of the Sword in the Stone, we're heading deep into the jungles of India, with 1967's The Jungle Book. Sam, I'm sure many people are going to be familiar with The Jungle Book. This is a really, really popular one. But for those who haven't seen it or haven't revisited it, what is the plot of The Jungle Book? So a young man cub, a.k.a. boy, 
right? That's what the animals call them, so I'm kind of doing it in-universe. A young man cub named Mowgli is discovered in the jungle by Bagheera the panther and raised by a pack of wolves, but to keep him safe from Shere Khan the tiger, who's got a, a bit of a grudge against humans, Bagheera tries to return him to the man village. Mowgli doesn't want to go back to the man village and he runs off and falls in with the fun-loving bear Baloo, and then this leads to a series of encounters with animal friends and foes, after which he defeats Shere Khan and eventually returns to his own kind. Yeah, I mean, this is one that's kind of fairly light on plot. It's a pretty laid-back movie. It's a series of encounters. It's uh, fun and sometimes quite threatening characters in the jungle and Mowgli sort of wandering through it all. But before we get into the film itself, let's talk about everything that was going on around this movie. So it's four years since The Sword and the Stone came out, and because of the Xerox process, they were able to do things more quickly and more cheaply. So that's quite a long gap between films. But something that we've mentioned in the past is that between Sword in the Stone and The Jungle Book, Walt Disney dies. The founder of all of this, the man without whom there would be none of these films, died between the making of those two films. So was that a big part of the reason that this film took so long to come together? Well, prior to this, they'd announced that they were going to be bringing out an animated movie every two years, and that's obviously a target that they failed to hit, but then that's a target that already failed to hit by the time that Walt Disney died. So he died on December the 15th, 1966, which was 10 months before the film was released, and it was well into production. And obviously it did hit the studio quite hard. If you read interviews with any of the animators from that time, they're like, yes, even though some of them had very contentious relationships with Walt, some of which we've covered so far on the podcast already, they all say, like, yeah, felt like we'd lost a leader, we felt bereft, we felt directionless, and it obviously did take them a bit of time to regroup. And also, and this might be a narrative that's been created retroactively on the basis of it being his final film, but you often hear that Walt was more directly involved in making this movie than he had been on previous features and we've talked about 101 Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone and on those films in particular he was very conspicuously absent during the production process and he wasn't really happy with how they turned out so I think it might be true but it might also be part of a process of narrativizing this as Walt's last film and, and being able to proclaim this as like Walt's last big triumph you've got people saying that he was more intimately involved in this, which might also mean that the production took more of a hit than it might have done had he died during Sword in the Stone, perhaps. I mean, we're going to get into Walt's death on our upcoming study group episode. That's going to be a big part of the next episode of the podcast. But how did his death affect this film in particular? You were saying that it was actually kind of 10 months before it came out, so it was already, in terms of that two-year schedule, it was already behind schedule. What else was happening at the studio while they were making The Jungle Book? Well, there was a little bit of turmoil in terms of who was the primary guiding force behind it. So obviously we've got Wolfgang Reitherman, who was one of the nine old men, who was Disney's first solo feature director. He directed The Sword and the Stone. That was the first Disney movie with one credited director, and he's also solo directing this. But then we've also got enemy of the show Bill Peet, who was the writer responsible <laughs> for the subpar screenplay for The Sword and the Stone, who also worked on a screenplay for this. Oh, Sam, the Stoneheads are going to be coming for you again. We got a bit of flack because we did not like The Sword and the Stone. Look, we're just going to be honest about what we think about these films every week. But yes, you've got a real vendetta against Bill Pete. So <laughs> Bill Pete wrote a screenplay for this, which was a lot closer to the Kipling book than what we 
got. And like Sword in the Stone, this was Bill Pete's idea for a movie. He'd wanted to do this for years, and as soon as Pete finished writing the Sword in the Stone screenplay, Walt bought the rights. So he was quite confident in what Pete was turning out. 101 Dalmatians had been a big success. Sword in the Stone less so. At this point, people are starting to think, oh, I'm not sure about this Bill Pete guy. And then when he eventually turned in the screenplay... It was apparently extremely dark. The word Pinocchio is thrown around when, when talking about this screenplay. Um, there are remnants of it on Disney Plus in like the extras section for this movie. There's some deleted scenes. I can give you what the original ending was going to be if you want. It's bleak. Should we? Oh, let's save that for discarded. We'll come back right, to okay, it. Okay. So some of what Pete was doing was very dark. He had a songwriter working with him called Terry Gilkeyson who apparently his songs were also quite bleak. The only holdover was Bare Necessities. He wrote Bare Necessities, the rest of the songs ended up being written by the Sherman Brothers, and everything Pete and Gilkeyson did was thrown out, and Bill Pete left the studio. He stormed off in a huff. Boo. Look, I'm sorry. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Massive respect for Bill Pete. Rest in peace. But, <laughs> but also, glad he left. Yeah, Don't boo. want any more films from him. Sword in the Stone sucks, man. <laughs> so, so there was quite a big turnover in personnel during this. Ryderman took over more forcefully what was going on. He wasn't a fan of what Pete was doing. He argued that Pete wasn't taking into account the ideas and desires of the animators who actually would have to make the film, and that seems to have been a big issue in Sword in the Stone as well. We talked about that last time. So Ryderman and the animators are taking over the development of the plot here. Pete was replaced with story artist Larry Clemens. Apparently Walt gave Clemens the book and said, all right, look, the first thing I want you to do is to not read this book. Just throw it away. (laughs) Do whatever you want. Here's some character names. Just take it and run with it. Also on the story team was Floyd Norman, who was the studio's first black artist, and this was his first major role. He was like an in-betweener, like an assistant animator on Dalmatians and Soul in the Stone, but this was his first major role in developing a Disney feature film. Uncredited in the opening credits, but so it goes. And he plotted the scenes with Carr and the Vultures, so that's just kind of a milestone for the Disney studio. He would leave after this movie as well to strike out on his own, and he's a legend. He continues to give great interviews about his time at Disney. Cool guy. And... You mentioned there, obviously, this is based on Kipling very, very loosely. And you often get the sense that Disney, in terms of its adaptations, that maybe that was driven by Waltz of what they were picking. But it sounds like Bill Pete was the driving force between, like, hey, we should do something with this. How, how long was he working on that? A long time. I mean, I don't know how long he was working on it for, but he'd wanted to do it. He had the idea while he was making Sword in the Stone. So this wasn't one with, like, a huge protracted development history, like some of the 1950s films. Um, I think we're getting to a point with Disney where they decide to make a movie and then make the movie more or less in between films, you know, the, the the productions don't overlap so much at this point, partly because you've got people like Wally Ryderman and the nine old men whose number is quickly dwindling in terms of who's actually working in animation, so they're short-staffed, so they're not kind of producing movies, it doesn't overlap in the way that it used to. Am I right in thinking that this episode will be our last Nine Old Man of the Week? Will we be hearing the honking alarm for the one last time? <laughs> yes, 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 so look forward to that, you've got the alarm to look forward to. Come on then, should we all head into the jungle? Should we take a stroll with the man cub and the big bear and wait for the terrifying sounds of the nine old man of the week alarm? (laughs) Let's do it. Let's go. You know the drill by now then. So many of these Disney films begin with a shot of a book. This is the jungle book. We have a shot 
of the Jungle Book telling us that this film is called The Jungle Book, and it's a book which actually isn't in a jungle, I don't think. It's just a book on its own. But for once, I don't want to focus on the book. I want to focus on the jungle, because this is such a great environment. I think that's one of the things that makes this film really stand out, is the look and the feel of being in the jungle. We've had some really great natural environments in Disney films. Bambi was huge for me because of how beautifully it evoked the forest. With this, I don't think it's quite as deep. You don't get those kind of beautiful multiplane tracking shots and things. It's not really playing on that level. But there's something about the tone and the feel of this jungle environment that it's just lovely to spend time in. I think so much of that comes down to the music as well, which I mentioned earlier. Like, this is one of my all-time favourite Disney scores. There's some great songs, but I think the score here is fantastic. And it's just got that, like, faintly exotic sense arguably a little bit orientalist perhaps um in terms of depicting this jungle this area of this foreign country as somewhere strange and dark and and exotic but it is still so enticing and hypnotic apparently this overture was removed from the sword and the stone what they they would have used this music in the sword and the stone that doesn't sound like it would fit at all presumably very different instrumentation just picture it on a lute yeah just imagine right. it on, a, on a lute <laughs> or a, a a harpsichord is that like a medieval? That I sounds oldie timey. I, I love that combination of sounds and images. That music you're talking about is amazing, and those, the shots that bring you into the jungle, is this really beautiful light. There's all these kind of glowing orangey, purpley sunsets. All these beautiful like trees. It just feels like they're having a great time getting to animate these backgrounds and to to bring this environment to life. Yeah, one thing I did notice from we watching, and, and maybe this is something you can talk about, Sam, but the the backgrounds did seem less detailed than some of the other Disney films that are set in similar environments, like you know Bambi or even Snow White. Like the detail in the background is a bit looser, but it almost doesn't matter too much. I I kind of love the like you say, the light and, and colour choices are really evocative and beautiful. And the thing that struck me as well is the character animation is so good in this film. It's like they're all recognisable animals in their own different ways, but they still have that sort of caricaturist touch and there's a bit of personality. And the animation right at the start with Mowgli, we're just wandering along and he just sort of throws a stick, which is just <laughs> such like childlike sort of fidgety, distracted thing to do. I thought that's so good. It's really well observed and really like careful attention to detail just gives it that real sort of human touch almost. I mean, we'll come to the characters, but Sam, yeah, I'm intrigued about what John said about the backgrounds because it stood out to me that they have a really watercolory like texture you can feel the texture of the paper in the backgrounds which i'm not sure i've ever really noticed in a disney film before were they doing something different here i mean it's not if, if you look at what they've been doing in especially dalmatians but also sodden the storm to an extent they're using that xerox process not just for the characters to get the animators pencils directly on screen but they're also using it for the backgrounds as well which i think gives london and dalmatians this really cool grimy urban aesthetic and that's obviously not what you want here it's a lot more impressionistic and almost hazy and that i think contributes to that great sense of nostalgia it's almost dreamlike it's like you're looking at the jungle through your own memories or through the filter of your own childhood perhaps from the perspective of like an adult Mowgli for example not that that's necessarily what was intended arguably it was just another cost saving measure so much of what Ritherman is is doing in these movies is a cost saving measure 
we'll get to some of the other cost saving measures later on yeah it's quicker to do that it's quicker to do these looser more impressionistic backgrounds than it is to do something incredibly detailed like the forest and snow white for example but the fact that it has this really cool effect might just be incidental but it's there I mean, the jungle is a lovely environment to spend time in throughout the course of this film, but you're totally right, John. It's the characters in this that are the major standouts. So let's talk about our sort of central two characters, Mowgli and Bagheera. I totally agree with what you're saying, that these every character is animated really differently. They all move differently. They all have a very different feel to them. But they also have really distinctive kind of personalities and faces. I love at the very beginning when Bagheera discovers Mowgli, he's like absolutely shook. His eyes, he's like, (laughs) when he hears the baby crying. (laughs) He's got such an expressive face. And Mowgli as well, like we were talking in the Sword and the Stone episode about how Wart slash Arthur just literally has no personality whatsoever. Mowgli, he's not like feral but he he is very like wild he's always just like chucking stuff about and like slouching around and just sort of he's got a really scrappy energy to him that i think is all there in the way that he's drawn and the way that he moves i like making big kind of bald claims on this podcast i think this is the best character animation in a disney movie to this point the characters feel so lived in i mean first of all we've got what john was saying that you've got to both depict these animals in a great amount of study detail to capture how the animals move and also anthropomorphize them to an extent that we can relate to them and if you compare that to something like bambi i think bambi there's two types of characters in bambi there's the really well studied characters like the deers where they've clearly spent hours and hours and hours looking at actual deer to capture that and then there's characters like thumper who are basically cartoon characters straight from like the mickey mouse universe and the jungle book for the most part blends those together really really well when you look at characters like bagheera or shere khan you can like feel their muscles right you can almost see their muscles moving under their skin it's so detailed but then their faces are really caricatured and expressive so they've captured that balance really really well and i also think these are some of the best character performances from the voice cast in a disney movie so far as well yeah they all get their little shout outs in the opening credits don't they they kind of really foreground the kind of major roles and who's playing what before you even meet any of these characters feels like they were making a big deal about that yeah and i mean there are celebrities in this movie from the time they did this a little bit in alice in wonderland with like radio comedians like edwin played the mad hatter but this is like a milestone movie in terms of building characters around celebrities in terms of getting celebs in there especially um phil harris who played baloo and louis prima who played king louis and we'll talk about those guys later so much of their dialogue was improvised which again is like a a forerunner to what they would do with robin williams with the genie but they are selling this movie based on the characters and you get people from the time saying that or like people reviewing these movies slightly after they were released, like in, in the in the couple of decades following, saying, "Oh, it's like you're just watching." It's hard to believe in Baloo because it's like you're just watching Phil Harris. You know, it's it's like you're just watching this really famous guy who we all know, and we don't know Phil Harris today. <laughs> nobody knows Phil Harris. God bless him. Nobody knows Louis Prima. Nobody knows. George Sanders or Sebastian Cabot, who play Shere Khan and Bagheera, respectively, right? They are best known for these movies. If you're a really big Disney fan of the films from this era, you know Phil Harris, because he's going to be in Aristocats and he's going to be in Robin Hood. But what we get instead of, oh, this is just Phil Harris, is this is a really 
well-developed inhabited character because we're watching characters who have been invested with the development of decades of working on your own persona so like if you're if you're a comedian like phil harris or you're like a, a kind of charismatic musician like louis prima you've been working on a public persona for years and that means that when you come to movies like this you can just come in and bring that to the movie so it's not it doesn't feel like a character that's been scripted it feels like a character who exists because in a way he does and his name's phil harris and he's been out there in the <laughs> world making puns on and jokes about his wife on radio shows for decades <laughs> oh the 60s crack out the wife jokes again who was phil harris then was he a bit like baloo in real life was he just saying just just lay it on me man and all of this like <laughs> sort of lackadaisical yeah, just, 60s stuff just a cool dude he'd been around for a long long time he was a band leader and a comedian and he would be like a guest star on a lot of TV and radio sitcoms. And I think he had his own sitcom at one point as well. And yeah, it's just just a super cool dude. In terms of um, Mowgli as a character, the thing that most impressed me was you were saying how each of the animal characters like it inhabits that animal, but then they kind of give them personalities through the faces and stuff. With Mowgli, because his whole status is he's a boy, he's a human boy, but he's in with all the animals, he feels really malleable as a character. It really stood out to me in that moment when Mowgli's marching with the elephants and he's kind of walking on all fours. That the way that he's designed, you can sort of do anything with him and he like has some human qualities, but he also feels quite animalistic at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the development of his character as well and the journey that his characters go through. So it's not just the elephants every animal he encounters almost he imitates their behavior or he tries to fit in with their group so he imitates the wolves he imitates blue he imitates the monkeys he, he tries to fit in with the vultures and he joins their barbershop quartet and sings with them and stuff <laughs> as you do <laughs> that's how children grow up that's part of how children grow up is imitating adult behavior and they're doing something analogous here with Mowgli's journey as a character and i think not only that, it also accentuates the differences between the species and the differences between Mowgli and these other species because, you know, when he's imitating an elephant, for example, he's not doing it very well. And that is commented on in the movie, like, where's your trunk, you know? So by having them try and speak in all these foreign languages, you could say, it's showing that he doesn't belong and that he needs to be somewhere else. Yeah, I love how curious he is. And there are little minor touches that really make him up, like his little half smile that he does. You see that a couple of times, especially at the, right at the end when he, he goes to the man village and sees the girl. And it's his nose sort of crunches up and it's just like, it's such a small nuance, but it makes such a difference to his character. It's great. Yeah, he's properly got the face of like a scrappy little kid. Yeah. Of this just proper little wild boy. I think that really comes across. I mean, we'll get to Baloo and King Louie. We're going to talk about them kind of extensively later on. But Sam, when you were talking about the fact that Mowgli is kind of trying to imitate all the characters that he meets, it reminded me, this film, of kind of of Pinocchio in a much less intense way. <laughs> but in the sense that... Pinocchio was this kind of character who they were trying to keep him on the straight and narrow and stop him from falling into this kind of bohemian lifestyle with the showbiz people and the horrible coachman and indulging in all of the bad things. With Mowgli, it's like Bagheera's kind of trying to keep him away from Baloo and King Louie, these sort of like hip cats out in the jungle who um, will kind of keep him away from where he needs to be. I thought that had a similar sort of shared feel to Pinocchio. Yeah, and that's quite significant as well because that's not really what the book 
is it's very episodic and it's also non-chronological. So the first story in the book is about Mowgli returning to the man village and then every or a lot of what follows is kind of in between, going back into his life in the jungle. So he doesn't really have... Like, when he meets characters like the monkeys and, like, Carr, it's in a very different context to what it is here. So I think they have maybe taken the bare bones of the book and try to restructure it into something which they are more familiar with than which the audience is maybe more familiar with and, and a structure that has been proven can be a hit for a film which again maybe Sword in the Stone needed to do a little bit more take what we've got from the source material but shape it into something more cinematic and more structured. And I think something that really stands out about this film is the fact that all of the creatures he meets feel very distinct so I love when he meets Carr um car is such a great character the way that he's always smacking his lips it's also like we're in the 60s now it's gonna get psychedelic as hell his swirly eyes are gonna be uh hypnotizing you and i love that shot as well of when car's got Mowgli all kind of snaked up in his coil <laughs> and Mowgli's just sort of vibing out with his eyes kind of uh twizzling around in his head what's your favorite creature from this film I was always a big fan of the elephants. They're really funny and they're watching it again it really stuck out how they almost animated slightly differently. I don't know if maybe I was reading too much into it, but it felt like they had a bit of a scruffier line to them, you know, like the the edges were a bit sort of messier, which was really really nice and seemed quite similar to what they're doing in 101 Dalmatians maybe, but and Sword in the Stone, but they have that like sort of the hairs all over the place. And I just love the, the sort of voice performances. I mean, I was surprised. I didn't remember there being this many clipped RP English actors in this film. Just, you know, lots of that. Lots of very old school English stuff, which is just hilarious. He had big Gungan energy for me. It was like, your boss ass. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I loved the elephants. They were my favourite when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I really wanted to be the baby elephant. I used to love doing the parade and I right. used to get my grandpa to get on all fours <laughs> and, oh. and, and hold his walking stick up like it was a trunk. Oh, and um, so and I would like follow him around singing the song. <laughs> up, two, three, four, pick it up. Two, three, four. <laughs> I love the elephants because so many of them are just absolute abject freaks, right? Like when, the, the scene that like really sticks in my head is when he goes through he's doing like the roll call and he goes through yeah. all the different elephants and the sword just like manky and like <laughs> just wrecked and some of them have got like the trunk snapped in half or just like twigs lying on their head and he gives that one a buzz cut that's excellent <laughs> it's interesting that you notice that the animation style on this is a little bit different though because this is an example of the reuse of animation which Wooly mm. Riverman really brought in as a director. He would send people back to the archives, to what they called the morgue, to dredge out stuff that he thought they could reuse. So this, a lot of the animation on the elephants is basically traced over with embellishments from a short that they did in 1960 called Goliath 2, about a little elephant who wants to be bigger. So that might be why it appears to be a little bit scratchier. Did you pick out on any other recycled bits of animation? Ben, did you, did you notice any? Oh, I can't remember, but there was something I mentioned in, I think it was the Sword in the Stone episode, that I was like, oh, that reminded me. Maybe it was something to do with Car and the Swirly Eyes that, mm. that felt like something was reused. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong scratchy tree. There's a bit from Sword in the Stone where um, Arthur's dog comes to meet him and licks him on the face, and that is reused for some of the interactions with the wolves in this. 
There's also some wolf stuff. The puppies are taken from 101 Dalmatians bits there. And my absolute favourite is in the chase where Balloon Bagheera tries to save Mowgli from the monkeys, right? Which is traced from the scene in The Wind in the Willows where Ratty and Morley are trying to get the deed to Toad Hall back from all the weasels. <laughs> Right, because the way that it's being passed, like one side's like yeah. picking up the MacGuffin and then the other side is getting it back and they're kind of passing it back and forth. It's yeah. exactly the same and it's weird because like animators didn't find doing this any easier. Like I think Ryderman <laughs> assumed that, oh, just go and get something that we've used before and it'll, it'll be easier and it'll be quicker and it'll be cheaper. But there's an animator called John Ewing who was in charge of Trace in this sequence who tells a story about Ritherman saying, look, we've got to do this chase, okay? So what I want you to do, I want you to go to the morgue and I want you to find the chase from the wind in the willows and then all you've got to do is redraw the weasels as monkeys, redraw the rat as Baloo, and then the mole is Bagheera, and then the deed to Toad Hall, you just redraw it as Mowgli. And John Ewing's looking at him like, what? That's, how is that easier? I've got to trace a piece of paper and make it into a boy? <laughs> That's not easier. If they had gifts back then, this is where you'd insert Gino DeCampo and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bike <laughs> meme. Because, like, say, well, it's exactly the same. You just swap this for this and this for that and this for that. It's like, no, you're just doing something totally new at that point and trying to make it fit old movements of something else. That feels like more work, if anything. The other thing that I wanted to say about the elephants that I think is important is that they are our only way of situating this movie really in a particular time because this is meant to be set during the kind of late 1800s colonial era in India which is when Kipling lived in India and wrote these stories and the elephants are our link to that because Colonel Hathi served in the army he's a military elephant and that's why he's got this british accent and that's why he's got this obsession with staying in rank and file and he says that he he won the victoria cross and it's possibly being a little bit embellished there because he is obviously a bit of a blowhard but i think that's a, a significant link that places it in this colonial context yeah i'm intrigued about that because obviously this comes up with the outdated cultural depictions warning at the beginning and to me there wasn't any one element that really stood out as being particularly i don't know problematic but it clearly comes from this kind of colonial context and i think you feel that in the elephants but that feels almost like a puncturing of that self-serious kind of army man in fact it, the way that it's played for laughs the other thing i said he's got gungan energy the other thing that stood out to me almost like a grandpa simpson vibe like he's one step away from i tied an onion to my belt which was the style <laughs> at the time of like just being stuck in the past basically and everybody else sort of laughing at him for that if we're talking about the accents though and the voices of these other creatures we have to talk about the vultures have i picked up from somewhere were these vultures supposed to be voiced by the beatles is that a thing yes that is true wow they were supposed to be voiced by the beatles so robert sherman or richard sherman i get them mixed up one of the sherman brothers the one who was still alive who wrote all of the songs apart from the bare necessities for this the story that he tells is that John specifically didn't want to do it. He was like, we asked the Beatles and John was like, no, 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 that's not happening. That would be like embarrassing to make an animated movie with the Beatles in it. And then a couple of years later, the Mid Yellow Summer Ring. Um, so that's supposed to be the irony here. So they couldn't get the Beatles, but they're stuck with the mop top scouse thing. And instead, they got another huge star of the British invasion, Chad Stewart. Oh, we all know and love Chad Stewart, right, guys? <laughs> yeah, Chad Stewart's right in there. Have um, you been he... seeing the new Chad Stewart movie, The Jungle Book? <laughs> <laughs> 
Chad Stewart from Chad and Jeremy. Chad and oh, Jeremy. Th- th- what, they couldn't get Jeremy? Was Jeremy too big for this film? <laughs> uh, Jeremy also thought it would be embarrassing to be in an animated <laughs> movie. So, yeah, three of them are Scouse mop tops, and one of them is a bald cockney. <laughs> yeah, one of them sounds like Michael Caine, and the others sound like vaguely, vaguely Scouse. I would say it's a slightly more convincing Scouse lilt than whenever they tried to get American people to do Scottish accents. That, that has always ended mm. badly in these Disney films so far. So the song that they do, That's What Friends Are For, was written and recorded as a Beatles pastiche, as like a rock and roll early Beatles song, like Beatlemania song. And that version is on Disney Plus as well in the deleted scenes. And uh, they had a rhino friend in that scene too, and he would do backing vocals anyway. So Walt decided that he didn't want the song to sound like the Beatles because that would quickly become dated and Barbershop is timeless. <laughs> oh that's <Wow>. great <laughs> so well isn't it yeah i really like that song though this is another connection i have to the jungle book i actually sang that song at a friend's wedding once me and a few other friends we had a, a makeshift oh, barbershop no quartet yeah but we didn't put on scouse accents or goofy vulture hair but yeah <laughs> That's great. What part were you? Where does your voice sit in the uh, four-part harmony? Uh, I don't think I'm quite as deep as a Shere Khan uh, bass, but um, I think I was probably a tenor, you would say. Although, isn't there a line, do they? Do the, one of the vultures say to Mowgli, we need a tenor? Yeah, so you're Mowgli in I'm this Mowgli. situation. <laughs> but isn't a tenor like, you have to be quite low to be a tenor, and he's like an eight-year-old no, boy. I, I thought tenor, oh, look, here we go, talking about something I know absolutely nothing about. I think tenor is like the highest register in an opera. Like the higher male register, obviously below falsetto. I don't know. I I don't know. Do you get male sopranos and not in a Tony Soprano Oh, possibly. You get castratos as well. People, again, I I think you get a castrato, (laughs) which is someone, back in the day, it was the part that a eunuch would sing. Yes. Sam, what was Willie the singing whale? Willie the singing whale could sing he in had every the three register. That was his, yeah, <laughs> Willie the operatic whale had three uvulas, which enabled him to sing <laughs> tenor, baritone, and bass, and he could perform any part in any opera. They only had to make the costume big enough. Anyway, I think we've got off track. Just before we move on from those guys, then, I do want to bring Carr back up because I, I just love that character. Sterling Holloway is the voice. Sam, why do Correct. I know that name? Sterling Holloway's been on the scene since Dumbo. He's probably the most prolific i keep meaning to actually google this and do like a tally chart of who's been the most i think he's the most prolific voice artist from this period of disney so he was in dumbo as the stork he narrated the crap short about the cold penguin in there the three caballeros he was flower in bambi and he was the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland, and he's going to be in a couple more movies down the line as well. And he does a really good job here, right? He does all those hisses. He does all that sibilance. And the, the right, the dialogue, so that he's got a lot of S's to do, and the Shermans wrote the songs, so that there was loads of S's in it as well, trust in me. That song was an off-cut from Mary Poppins. Ooh, how would that have played into Mary Poppins? What's the sinister Mary Poppins snake moment? So they were originally going to, one of the adventures that would go on would be a trip to the Sahara Desert, and that was going to be a song called The Land of Sand, which I imagine would go like this. The Land of Sand... <laughs> 
<laughs> Same song, different words. I think his voice is amazing, but I just also love the way this character is animated. I love that whenever Carr is on screen, there's always just like bits of him coming in from different angles on different areas of the screen. And obviously they play a lot with his snakiness of the fact he's very fluid, but there's that moment when uh, he's hypnotized Mowgli and Mowgli's kind of walking down him and he's he's like a, mm. a set of stairs uh, with all these little angles. And, and when he concertinas together, you get that little kind of accordion. He's the cartoonist character, right? He's mm. the only one who doesn't really move like how he's supposed to move, how he would move in the real world. And that's great because he's a snake and that lends itself to the fluidity that earlier animated characters have that like Fleischer Brothers characters have where they can morph into different shapes quite easily. But if we're going to talk about characters, let's move on to the big guns. Let's talk about Baloo, who we meet actually really early on after all of the car stuff and the elephants. That is when we meet Baloo for the first time. He gets a great entrance, just doobie 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 <laughs> into shot. That's how I want to enter any room from now on. Oh, he's amazing, isn't he? I mean, we we talked about Phil Harris. I think his voice is just amazing. I really, it really struck me this time just how bassy it is, just how sort of deep and sort of resonant. And I guess maybe you don't hear voices like that anymore because maybe people don't smoke as much as they used to back <laughs> in the day. It, it really sounded like he's on a, you know, 40 a day habit. But it's just really, it's got such a lovely texture to it, hasn't it? And he instantly gives him this sort of genial, like, cool uncle vibe, which is impossible not to love. It's really, really lovely. I think he's the best character in a Disney movie to this point. This is me making big, bold claims. I, I think he's the best character. Like, he's the best... Maybe not the one. I mean, I love Cyril the Cockney Horse and all of that <laughs> from Make Up Brother, Mr. Toad. I've, Who I love, say? I love Willie the Whale. I've got my like cult favourites, but he is a really well drawn character in more ways than one. He's a really well developed character. He's got different sides to him. He wants to be the cool uncle, but he also really loves Mowgli. And you've got that great scene where he has to tell him that he's decided Mowgli should go back to the man village. And he's doing all that great incidental acting. like He's scratching his neck and he's like scratching his head and he's scratching his chest. And it's, it's like a, a nervous tick that he's got. And he, he just feels, like I said before, so lived in and so real as a person in a way that it doesn't feel like we've really had. I think Lady and the Tramp maybe had some fairly well-fleshed-out characters, but I don't know. I think the Jungle Book and Baloo in particular takes it into a different level in terms of characterization. Yeah, I think there is a bit of dramatic weight there in that you see how well he gets on with Mowgli and how fun they are together, but also you know as, as an audience member that, oh, he's not the most responsible guy. He's probably not who Mowgli should be with full-time going on from here. Um, so there is dramatic weight there, but there's also just it's so much fun seeing these guys play off each other and that comes up pretty much straight away because we go into the bare necessities which is an absolute banger what a just beautiful sequence so carefree this really really just fun nonsense song about fruit and food and eating prickly pears and fancy ants and my favorite thing maybe my favorite thing in this film my favorite like small thing is just blue popping bananas straight out of their skins is like <laughs> <Yeah>. endlessly satisfying <laughs> and i don't know why is there's just something about that image that's cool as hell my favorite thing from this movie is the shot of him floating down the river with Mowgli on his chest with that 
beautiful like hazy background which mixes different shades of dark and light green and then the beautiful blues on the river i just think those colors come together really well and it's just bliss it's just absolute serenity and would i like to be Mowgli floating down the river on a big bear's chest maybe <laughs> you know but that's if, if i could be any disney character in any moment it'd be Mowgli on the big bear's chest yeah that song has such a, a great vibe to it doesn't it it really i mean what is the point of it it's just trying to say just live your life just chill out you know it's it there's such a lovely feel to it and and what was interesting watching it as well is like these songs are so iconic now they're so well known almost to the point of being overplayed you know it's kind of like it part of our cultural fabric almost but when you watch it paired with the animation it goes together so well it's such a beautifully put together sequence it's very hakuna matatari isn't mm. it in terms of its role in the story and the themes of its lyrics and also in terms of the fact that both of these songs in their respective movies they're meant to be like these are the songs that are trying to tempt our hero away from the right path right we're not really supposed to want Mowgli <laughs> to just want the bare necessities or want Simba to have no worries for the rest of their days we want them to continue along on the hero's narrative that they've set out on but the songs are so good that they be- and they become so iconic that it's like no yeah bare necessities great Hakuna Matata great just spend all the time having fun in the jungle with these sidekicks that's all you've got to do it really sells that idea you're like yeah the bare necessities of life that is all I need it's such a carefree tune I think as well there's something about the free spiritedness of that song and Sam as you said that beautiful image of them just gliding down the river that for me the joy of this film the thing I love about this film is that it's best when it's just sort of floating along doing its own thing kind of carefree I think even when Mowgli is in various scrapes and various situations apart from when he's facing off against Shere Khan at the end you don't really feel much in the way of peril. I don't feel peril. I don't feel panicked when he's being hypnotised by Carr. I think the whole film just feels really laid back. And as this series of encounters, as this just kind of collection of moments and kind of slowly strolling through the jungle, that is the charm of this film. And it feels like it's all encapsulated in the feel of this song as well. Yeah, it has a very loose narrative, as I think you said, but it's it is kind of just a series of vignettes, isn't it? It's just a sort of, here's a new animal you meet. I mean, I don't want to compare it to the film Cats, but it, it is... <laughs> oh, where is this going? I can't wait to see how this all ties together. Well, Come on. It, 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 it's just, here's a new animal. Let's talk about this animal. We'll sing a song about it, and then we'll move on. And in the movie Cats, every one of those animals is, is a, a cat. cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, my feelings on Cats... Is, is a matter of public record so we don't need to relitigate that but two stars john eugent where, where did that extra star come from <laughs> was it ray know. winston yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i keep forgetting ray winston's in that film and when i remember it it just oh wow what a moment cat. but you know i think cats tr- tried to do what jungle book successfully did uh which is you know this sort of vignette style storytelling in the jungle book it's just lovely it's just like it's just works he's just hanging out with different animals and singing about their lives i'll tell you what i'll seed this right that's not the last reference to cats we're gonna get Ooh. on this podcast cats Ooh. cats comes up later in my notes so just <laughs> that feels more that. like a threat yeah. than anything else i just want to say before we move on from bare necessities my other favorite bit of animation in this film is baloo scratching his butt on the rocks because you can like feel how good that feels it makes you want to find your nearest rock and scratch your butt on it which um 
stick that on the poster. So, Bare Necessities, total banger, massive hit, everyone loves it, but it's not the only big song from this movie, because very hot on its heels is I Wanna Be Like You, this incredible sequence with King Louis, the monkeys, the orangutans come, and they take Mowgli away to this kind of ancient, ruinous kingdom of King Louis. And as I was watching the film, I was like, oh my god, we're, we're like half an hour in, and we're already at King Louis. It absolutely licks along. But yeah, I Want to Be Like You is such a great song. It's so catchy, the energy of it. And the thing I never really clicked with before until I was watching it again this time is that it's basically an I Want song, but in a very, not in the way, usually an I Want song in Disney terms is your protagonist kind of setting out their ultimate aim. Whereas this, it's Louis who gets the I Want song of him wanting to uh, obviously be human and know the secrets of making fire. What do you guys make of this sequence? What struck out for me watching it again, which is something I totally didn't pick up on as a kid, was how it's kind of playing on jazz and the beatnik culture, right? It's like a, I mean, they have a scat off, which, by the way, I learned that scat off by heart as a kid. I knew every little oh, weird no intonation. Oh, I could absolutely do it right. Oh, if you guys manage to recreate that right here, right now, I would, I would lose my shit. I can't and do never it. get it back. <laughs> but like, it's really funny to realize to sort of frame it in that context as an adult, when understanding that this, of course, this is in the mid late sixties. Jazz is a big deal. The beatniks are the big deal. <laughs> There's some like really funny dialogue. I think Bagheera at some point says, "Stop that silly beat business," which is, just sounds like what an adult, you know, like a parent might say in the sixties. And lots of talk about squares and stuff. And it's like very sort of of its time in a way, which I had no idea. As a kid, you just think these things are kind of timeless, but maybe it's a bit more specific. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's like the Beatles stuff as well. Although, you know, right. it's, it's interesting. We talked a bit about this with, it might have been on Dalmatians where Disney are slowly starting to integrate jazz into their movies. And, and it's like, this is a genre that's been around for like over 40 years at this point. You know, there were pop jazz hits in like the 1920s and 30s and there's animation that incorporates jazz in the 1930s as well but um yeah i mean it, maybe it was having a cultural renaissance in the 60s with like the beatnik culture and stuff in, in, in new york i'm not 100 percent sure about that but um yeah it, it does feel contemporary but it does still feel timeless this is another song where the, the poppiness and the catchiness of the music is sort of at odds with what's actually going on in the story as well because like King Louis is a baddie. People forget that because he's such a fun guy and it's such a fun song. He's a bad guy. He's a threat. He's trying to get Mowgli to teach him how to use fire so that he can, what, like, be a man or, like, burn people, hurt people? I don't really know. <laughs> and in other versions of the Jungle Book, in the novel, the monkeys are a huge threat. In the John Favreau quote-unquote live-action film, which we'll talk about more later, the King Louis character played by Christopher Walken is terrifying, right? Still sings a song, which is weird, but he is scary. And, like, Mowgli is... He feels threatened throughout that whole scene, whereas in this version, Mowgli is seduced. And by the time Baloo and Bagheera come in to get him, he's just, like, dancing around. He doesn't really see why he needs to be saved. He's, he's having a good time just like we are. I mean, we've talked a lot about the character animation in this film, and King Louis, again, is another classic for me. I love that he basically, yeah, has four hands. Instead of having two hands and two feet, he has four hands, and he uses them all. The way that he kind of flies around and flows around uh, is amazing. Uh, that moment when he's sort of skipping in his 
his own arms. He's using his own <laughs> arms as a skipping rope. It's awesome. And I also really liked just this little character beat where you can see his total distaste for the little henchman monkey who loves to mouth trumpet, who I'm massively related to because I love mouth trumpeting. Yeah, I've been walking around the house for the last two days mouth trumpeting this particular song, and I think it's been driving my girlfriend crazy, so maybe she can relate <laughs> to King Louis in that instance. I also really loved when Blue shows up and it's like that classic animation thing where he has a minimal costume and they're all convinced, you know, <laughs> yes, just like he so looks clearly he's a bear with a coconut. But uh, <laughs> all the monkeys are like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's obviously a monkey. It's so good. I love that comedic beat when Bagheera and Baloo are trying to put together a plan and Bagheera's like, look, we can't just rush into this. We need brains not brawn and Baloo says you better believe it baby and I'm loaded with both <laughs> oh yeah. the balls on the guy it's awesome <laughs> Baloo is almost it's I mean he's almost hypnotized isn't he he's just like I'm gone man he just, <laughs> just loves the beat solid gone <laughs> But, you know, while we're talking about jazz in this sequence, I think we've also got to talk about the part that that music plays in coding these characters to an extent as African-American. And I think as much as any colonial connotations in the movie, that is probably contributed to the outdated cultural depictions one at the start of this film on Disney+. Plus, Which is interesting to me because this is an example of outdated cultural depictions which carries with it plausible deniability. Because I think that today, unlike with the explicit racism in Dumbo and Peter Pan, you can watch this movie, especially as a kid, and not recognise that these characters contain within them African-American stereotypes. They are not visually depicted as stereotypically african-american in the way that the crows are for example in dumbo instead it's through this association with jazz music and through the african-american vernacular that some of these characters speak in and king louis is voiced by louis prima and named after louis prima who is a white italian-american jazz performer who had credibility within the jazz scene and was particularly noted actually for being quite explicitly Italian-American and you would make lots of Italian references and use Italian language in his songs. Which means that there's an argument that at the time, if you're watching this and seeing Prima essentially playing himself and you know who Louis Prima is, that you're not particularly reading this as a stereotype of African-Americans either. But I think what is important to note is that the way that jazz is used does play into stereotypes. So obviously you've got the monkey reference, monkey being often used as an insult towards black people, and the fact that you've got these lyrics which suggest they are wanting to be human or playing at being human, which is something that is ascribed to the monkeys by Kipling in a way that's even easier to read as a critique of of colonised people. And this kind of pretentiousness is a trope of minstrel performances. So the old school black and white minstrel performances often included white characters dressed as black characters dressed as upper class white characters and the idea was that they are being uppity they are being pretentious they are trying to position themselves in this upper class white culture wearing like waistcoats and top hats and it's something that they can never aspire to and never attain which is obviously a deeply upsettingly racist notion that's something that's reflected here you've also got the fact that jazz is associated with this particular location this particular set and this particular point in the story where the character has wandered off the beaten track and ended up in somewhere that is dangerous and threatening and that is something that you see for example in a lot of the Betty Boop cartoons which utilized jazz music in the 1930s where she will wander into a situation 
which is forbidden, depraved, dangerous, or primitive, and jazz is used to soundtrack that. So you can tie this back to these earlier racist traditions, even if it's something that you may not perceive today. I think it's very interesting and very mature of Disney to put the label on the front of this movie, despite the fact that there is this plausible deniability, despite the fact that they could just pretend that it doesn't exist and that this it wasn't any of those associations weren't intentional or whatever. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the movie, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the song or the sequence, but it is something to be aware of. Mm. And you're right, taking ownership of, of that on Disney's part. Am I right in thinking King Louis, is there a perception that he was based on Louis Armstrong or that some, I mean I know some people even think he was played by Louis Armstrong was was there yeah. anything was he based on him at all was there was there any actual link there no he was very closely based on Louis Prima I think that's maybe that was a misconception at the time but I think Prima was fairly famous so people would have known that it, that's definitely a misconception that a lot of people hold today in fact he was so closely based on Louis Prima that after Prima died Disney refrained from using the King Louis character for a long time because his wife was threatening to sue them for using this character based on her husband's likeness. It's like, if you have this character called King Louis with a voice that's similar to my husband's voice, then you're basically depicting my husband. So there's like an episode of The House of Mouse in the 2000s where Mickey Mouse interacts with loads of different Disney characters where they have King Louis' identical twin brother, King Larry, just so that (laughs) they would avoid getting sued. So I think at the time, the link was definitely explicitly with Prima rather than with Louis Armstrong, but you can see why that might have developed. You're right in saying that King Louis is sort of positioned in some ways as a threat to Mowgli, maybe not as explicitly here as in other adaptations or other versions of this story. The big bad here is, of course, Shere Khan, who they do that great thing of kind of hyping him up through the first half of the film. Like, there's all this talk about Shere Khan and how dangerous he's going to be. So that then when you finally meet him, he lives up to that legend you know the way that when you see him he's stalking through the jungle he's got these bright yellow eyes that are kind of glaring through the grass and you have this kind of quite freewheeling first half of the film and then the second half is okay Shere Khan is like properly after him now I think Shere Khan is a great character like the threat of him the size of him the sort of very posh commanding voice that he has and that when he has that interaction with Carr when he's kind of tapping his claws on the ground he's just got a really threatening aura yeah it's a classic move to establish a character as a threat by showing them interacting with the previous like biggest threat in the movie i mean car's obviously been a goofball all the way through but there's this moment where he tries to hypnotize Shere khan something which he's managed to do successfully with all the other characters he starts to he's like trust in me and Shere khan's just like oh no i can't be bothered with that i have no time for that <laughs> nonsense yeah, I mean, that. I think that's one of my favourite lines from rewatching it. I thought George Sanders, his voice is incredible. We've talked a lot about the, you know, the English accents in this film. His is sort of the basiest and the most upper class of all of them. Uh, he just gives it this real imperiousness to the character. And yeah, there's nothing better than a British baddie, I suppose, is there? That just gives it the sort of gravitas and weight that a character that this needs as you rightly pointed out, his booming bass when he joins in the uh, the Vulture's Harmony as oh, well. Yeah. It just, like, sounds huge. Yeah, and of course the other thing about Shere Khan is... Ah, there it is, the Nine Old Man of the Week alarm. I was waiting for it. I was like, we're nearly at the end of discussing this film. When is the alarm going to kick in? I saved it. I was just savouring that tension, man. You were like Shere Khan in the grass waiting for the moment you were going to strike. bounce, yeah. So our Nine Old Man of the Week, our last Nine Old Man of the Week is Milt Carl, 
who is the guy behind Shere Khan in this movie. So he is often cited as the most technically gifted animator of the nine old men. If you read interviews with the other guys, they say like, oh yeah, he was he was the best. He was like the Michelangelo of animation or whatever. And he, he really knew it as well. He was quite outspoken and difficult by most accounts. The in-betweeners and inkers assigned to finish his work were terrified of him. If you look at his drawings, they've got notes on them that say things like, Watch the arcs, goddammit! So he was quite oh a goodness. frightening dude. Intense man. Yeah, a little bit like Shere Khan himself, maybe. So this started, like, right from the beginning of his career. He made it into, like, the big leagues of animation by... He was at a story meeting on Pinocchio, and he interrupted to say, like, I hate that design. I hate the way Pinocchio looks. Whoever designed Pinocchio, it's trash. So he was challenged to do better and he went away and came up with the design of Pinocchio that is in the movie. And Walt was just like, all right, okay, you're animating Pinocchio now. You're you're the lead guy on this movie. What a flex. Yeah, just a really... I mean, I respect that. I respect all of this behaviour, apart from, like, the abusing your underlings thing. That's not good, if true. So he had a great career, animated the adult Bambi, including that fantastic love fantasy scene when he meets Feline that I love so much. He worked a lot with Peter Pan and Tramp in those movies, and he was also an excellent designer, so he designed all the dogs for Lady and the Tramp. But because he was so good, he kept getting assigned to, like, league characters who he found really boring, like Peter Pan and Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty. He was very happy with the Xerox process. He loved the fact that he was seeing his drawings on screen, um, and it freed him from having to deal with inkers and cleanup artists who might mess up his work. He designed the final version of the characters for the Jungle Book. There's earlier designs from Bill Peets, which are a lot more comedic and kind of silly and maybe almost like Dr. Seussy, and, and, and Carl made them a lot more real and a lot more threatening. And, yeah, his main role on the film was Shere Khan, which is a really striking design. He's covered in stripes, which is very hard to animate. We talked about the spots on Dalmatians, and here you're dealing with the same thing. And the way that he makes him seem so powerful, but also restrained, like, every movement feels so strong. He doesn't move very much, but when he does, he does so with purpose, and and it feels like a big deal. And again, he's animalistic, but he's also refined and human, and it's just a really masterful piece of acting in this movie. Like I said, you can see like the sinew and the bones and the muscle as he moves. It's fantastic. So we would go on to do the human characters in the Aristocats, which we'll get to next time, but that's um, probably the highlight in that movie as far as animation is concerned. He did a lot of stuff on Robin Hood and he did the villain in The Rescuers, which is another delight that we'll get to down the line. So yeah, Milt Carl, Last Nine Old Man, potentially the best Probably not the best dude to be around, but left a great legacy of animation. And a great name, Milt Carl. Milt Carl, you're not going to forget that, right? I mean, I probably will. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you're a not cool name. going to forget that, right, Ben? Right, John? Right, listeners? You're not going to forget Milt no, Carl. No, Mr. Carl, please, Mr. Carl. <laughs> All right, there we go. The final nine old man of the week. Oh, which means we're going to get the final pop, the final toot of the alarm. Oh, yeah. Give it to us one last time, Sam. Uh... Longest nine old man of the week alarm ever. <laughs> oh, I'm getting emotional. I can feel the regret in your voice. The climax of the film then is this showdown with Shere Khan, and I thought this was one of the best finales of a Disney movie yet. Like, I think there's a real energy, a real sense of threat to this kind of showdown, to the fact that like 
Shere Khan absolutely like lays some smackdowns on Baloo and you feel like he could chomp Mowgli at any moment. And I think it came to a really nice conclusion as well, that idea of tying the fire to Shere Khan's tail and, and that has been threaded through his fear of fire, his fear of man and man's connection to fire. But yeah, it's just a big dramatic climax with lightning and trees on fire and a big tiger chasing everyone around. And it's Mowgli doing the thing that makes him human. He's no longer imitating animals. He's not trying to fight Shere Khan like a tiger might or like a bear might. He's doing something that a human can and using tools and using fire. Yeah, I mean, you really feel this sort of dramatic peril in this scene, even if you didn't feel it through the rest of the movie. Like, Shere Khan is a proper villain and, you know, he can really inspire fear. I didn't remember the fact that he runs away at the end. He just runs away. And the vaults is, is just like, well, that's the last we'll see of him. But I feel like if that fire goes out, he could probably come back quite quickly, couldn't he? Maybe that's a <laughs> plot hole I, I didn't really pick up on as a kid. But uh, but I don't know. Maybe he's learned his lesson. Who knows? Maybe we're going to get to this in uh, Lasting Legacy. But Maybe. The Jungle Book 2, Shere Khan Strikes Back. It's there for the taking. But the ending here, of course, obviously they defeat Shere Khan, but it's the ending of Mowgli's arc. It's getting Mowgli back to the man village. Not just getting him back there, but him making the choice to go to the man village himself, which slightly weirdly they do because he he read as maybe 10 years old to me, if that. (laughs) And the reason he decides to go is that he sees this, like, little girl by the river and instantly gets goo goo eyes over her um, and she's like really batting her eyes at him it's it's a bit strange but i thought there was real emotion to that ending of the sense of this adventure coming to an end this bittersweetness of Mowgli leaving the jungle behind and that he is kind of where he needs to be that he makes that choice for himself yeah this was Walt's idea to end it with him seeing a girl and being kind of tempted into the village by her and I think you've got interviews with some animators saying yeah we thought that was kind of weird as well because he's like 10 years old but we tried to make it more that he's just curious like he's seen something that intrigues him it's just like oh what's this i've never seen one of these before that's kind of cool i mean maybe that half smile he gives is a bit sort of curious but you're right i don't think you have to read anything sexual into it i think it's just this is presumably the first human he's ever laid eyes on right so um it's the final person he's going to imitate uh, is one of his own kind just to roll back slightly that my favorite shot in the whole film is the shot of Baloo where we think he's dead and he's just lying there in the sort of clearing. That's dark, John. That's so, a dark I know it's, favorite shot. <laughs> it's, it's dark, but it's so beautiful. It's just so like gorgeously put together. It's sort of like there's a bit of morning light coming up and there's this kind of dewy quality to it. And it's just really beautiful. I, I actually just really love how that whole scene is played. How it's just kind of his death is faked out and then Baloo just does his classic Baloo thing you're breaking my heart you know he's he's sort of <laughs> being as Baloo as he possibly can yeah the whole ending is I think really really lovely and they send you out on a final blast of Baloo as well like we do you know what we've got this bittersweet ending of Mowgli leaving our, our little gang behind so we're going to give you a quick blast of the bare necessities and everyone's going to go out singing and dancing and I, I love that final shot of the sort of multi-plane zoom out of the jungle with the orange sunset of Baloo and Bagheera heading back into the jungle and presumably having many more jungle adventures to come just with Mowgli away from them very Casablanca isn't it it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So now that we've left the jungle and returned to the man village, that brings us to the section of the show we call Discarded, 
where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the weird, creepy, strange stuff that they decided to leave out. So, I mean, Sam, I don't know a huge amount about the original Jungle Book stories, but this feels to me like a pretty loose and quite watered-down adaptation. Would that be correct? Yeah, they've kind of, like, funded it up, I would describe it as. Like, what they have done is they have taken anything that might have seemed a little bit, like, threatening or dangerous apart from Shere Khan and made it just a lot more fun. So, like, for example, the monkeys, who in this are known as the Bandar Log and who don't have a, a particular leader, King Louis a complete invention, they're just, like, this chaotic, frightening, homogenous mass, very, like, oh my god, I wouldn't want to be in a room with the Bandar Log because they would just rip you apart. They're still kind of, like, anarchic rather than evil, but it's kind of dark. Baloo is a totally different character in the stories. He's still, like, sleepy, is what they describe him as, because he's a sloth bear, but he's very strict and serious and earnest, and his role is that of the teacher to Mowgli and the young wolves, and he's the keeper of the laws of the jungle, and he he tells you about what the laws are. Kipling's very into laws of the jungle, (laughs) which is seen as part of the, like, colonial legacy of of these stories. It's about taking this um, deep, dark, uncontrollable thing that is the jungle and bringing it to heel with all these laws, which has imperialist connotations obviously so yeah baloo is a bit of a buzzkill oh man he sounds like a total square yeah he is the, like the the opposite of everything he aspires to in the film movie baloo would hit book baloo he would not be happy with that what break into electric book baloo <laughs> <laughs> i'm so oh, sorry yes. that was the stupidest joke i've ever made <laughs> The coolest character from the book is Car, and I like Car in the movie, but Car in the book needs to be in a movie, right? Because Car in the book, he's like this gigantic, like ageless beast, and he's the most feared and respected character, and he's actually kind of an ally. So Bagheera and Baloo go to Car as like the nuclear option to save Mowgli from the monkeys. It's like we've exhausted our options. Let's get this guy in. He's like a cross between the Hulk and John Wick. It's like he's the last <laughs> guy that these guys want to meet, and he just absolutely wrecks shop. He destroys the whole like monkey city on his own, and then he kills loads of the monkeys in a fight, and then he hypnotizes them all and eats them. Eats them all. Oh he my eats God. them all. They all kind of march into his mouth (laughs) and he nearly gets thing is he's just a force of nature because he nearly hypnotizes Bagheera and Baloo and in this version it's like Mowgli isn't affected because he's not an animal so he manages to wake up Bagheera and Baloo but he would have eaten them this guy doesn't care he doesn't care less it's like the blob but in snake form so Kai is the coolest character. And then the other thing about the Jungle Books, because there's actually two of them, is that the story continues after Mowgli arrives at the village. Basically what happens is he goes back to the jungle. He's kind of sick of it. He doesn't really like the humans. He's getting a bit bored of it. He goes back to the jungle and he kills Shere Khan with a buffalo stampede. What? Oh, wow. that's very Lion King. Very Lion King. And then the villagers turn against him because they think he's a sorcerer. They're like, oh, this guy is consorting with wolves and stuff. So he's just like, oh, these guys can suck it. And he goes back to the jungle. And then he finds out that because he's a sorcerer, the villagers are going to execute his foster mother, like his adopted human mother. So he gets Hathi and the elephants to come and destroy the village and presumably kill people. It's unclear if anyone's killed, but before he enters the village, Hathi says that he wants to get his tusks red. <laughs> Oh my god, and it sounds like, it's like Jungle Wars. So Beast people Wars. People are going to get hurt, yeah. It's funny, I remember trying to read the actual Jungle Book. My parents had 
a Kipling's Jungle Book on their shelf. And I remember, you know, loving the film and thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to see where all this came from. And I maybe got three pages in. Have you read it, Sam? It's it's written in a very Victorian style, right? I, I th- it's like Victorian mixed with Shakespeare. There's a lot of these and thous in the animals' dialogue. And it's very dry and didactic. And again, it's all about kind of this idea of law versus chaos, which is not only like, in retrospect, quite obviously racist. It's not very fun for a kid, I don't mm. think. I, I've tried to read it at multiple points in my life, and it's just like, no, this isn't happening. So the other thing that we'll have to circle back to is the original ending that Bill Pete wrote for the movie, which is on Disney+, Plus, which got chucked out, but it's this, like... Actually, it's not original storyboards. Some of the deleted scenes are original storyboards, but this, they just got someone to draw it anew. And this focuses on... So he goes back to the village, and he meets a new human villain called Buldeo. And this is a guy who is in the book, and Buldeo is a hunter. And he's heard that there's some buried treasure in the Monkey City. So he gets Mowgli to take him to find the treasure, and he's like, oh, I'm going to burn down the whole jungle if you don't get me this treasure. And then Shere Khan comes in, Shere Khan murders Buldeo, and then Mowgli takes Buldeo's gun and shoots Shere Khan in the face. What? Wow. Yeah. Absolute bloodbath. And then the ending of the movie is like, Bagheera and Baloo come in, and Mowgli's like telling them this story of what happened, and they're like, ha 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 ha. And Mowgli's like, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? It's true, it's true. And Bagheera's like, oh no, I know it's true, because I can see their two corpses lying on top of each other over there. And then the camera pans to reveal these two corpses, and then they're all like, ha 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 ha, like the end of an episode of Happy Days or something. And then that's, that's, that's the movie, chuckling over the sight of their fallen enemies. That is insane what you've just described there is more plot than happens in any of the rest of this film if that was like this extra ending that feels like a whole extra film's worth of plot yeah so probably a lot of reasons why they cut it out and that's discarded for the jungle book wow oh my god well let's talk about the reception to this film then so sword in the stone was a bit of a wap wap after uh 101 dalmatians but what did critics have to say at the time about the jungle book surely people had fun with this film right there were a few negative ninnies um one critic called judith christ which is a fantastic name <laughs> it's like judith christ <laughs> judith christ said that the movie was completely devoid of mood or atmosphere a middle brow cartoon of middling quality but that was like one of the only negative reviews i could find and i think that's being helped a little bit by the fact that walter just died and this was being received as his last movie so you've got time magazine saying um it was thoroughly delightful the reasons for its success lie in disney's own unfettered animal spirits his ability to be childlike without being childish it is the happiest possible way to remember walt disney although they also criticized it a little bit for being a poor adaptation they said that the jungle book is based on kipling in the same way that fox hunts are based on foxes I don't think that analogy tracks. That feels like another... <laughs> like, if I wrote that in a review these days, it would get sent back to say, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> big yeah. big line through that. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of weird kind of metaphors in these, in these old reviews. Yeah, so Life magazine said it was the best thing of its kind since Dumbo. And Gregory Peck, who was the president of the Academy, the Oscars at that time, campaigned really hard to get this a Best Picture nomination. It was unsuccessful. But it could have been maybe the first 
animated movie nominated for best picture but it wasn't to be ah man well so that was the critics people generally really liked it and and it felt like this kind of little tribute to Walt. was it a box office hit did it draw people in big hit uh 13 million dollars domestic which is just less than dalmatians 14 million and worldwide it made 24 million dollars it was huge in i think in france and germany it's still like one of the top five movies. Definitely in Germany, I think it's like the number one movie of all time adjusted for inflation. Whoa. So it was like a really big hit in Europe. It was the biggest animated movie ever, bigger than Snow White, etc. So commercially, Walt went out on a high, which is where it counts. Yeah. Okay, so what about our reviews then? Let's start with you, John, as our special guest. What star rating would you give to The Jungle Book? Would you recommend people check this out? Did it hold up for you? With my critic's hat on, I think I could probably... Yeah, it's a really tricky one. I think I would float between a four and a five. I think, you know, you could make an argument that perhaps narratively it's a little bit thin and perhaps some of the colonial era lessons maybe don't hold up in the modern era. But the inner child of me is it's a stone cold nailed on five stars. It's There's no argument about it. And certainly the nostalgia effect has uh, a big impact on that. But yeah, this is a very special film for me. I I love it to bits, I, and I had such a good time revisiting it. So I'm I have a lot of affection for it. What about you, Sam? Where are you sitting on this one? Yeah, it's five stars. It's fantastic. I'm not keeping like a log of what I rate all these movies, which is probably for the best because there'll be quite a few fours and fives going back in there. I think, but this is great. My oh, hey, I'm making big statements again. Is this my favorite movie of the bangers? No, because Sleeping Beauty. It's up there with Sleeping Beauty in a completely different way, obviously, because it's got much more heart and much more character and much more laughs. It doesn't look anywhere near as good, although it has its visual charms, but it's just so much fun. Five stars for me. 60% better than Cats. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going four on this one i had a lovely time that i think it's one of the most entertaining disney films we've watched so far just like a pure good time some really great songs in there loads of lovable characters which is something that disney for me hasn't always excelled at in in the films we've seen so far this one is just stacked with like really really fun characters to hang around with i think the only reason it slightly lessens for me is because it's a really laid-back film, it doesn't wow you or knock your socks off. But for me, that is loads of the charm of what this film is about. So it's definitely upper-tier bangers era for me. But yeah, I, I think now that we're at the end of this, and we'll discuss this, Sam, in our study group episode, but man, Sleeping Beauty blew me away. Lady and the Tramp charmed me so much more than I was expecting. But Jungle Book was just a really lovely time and just floats along on its own little rhythm. And uh, I'll happily revisit that rhythm any day. But now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. And, I mean, there are many Jungle Book movies, aren't there, Sam? This is not the only Jungle Book in the Disney uh, catalogue. Oh boy, no. Where shall we start? Let's start with The Jungle Book 2, which was the animated sequel from 2003. And you can tell it's 2003 because they have a cover of I Wanna Be Like You by Smash Mouth. Oh, no way. That is awesome. Wow. Oh, man. That is peak 2003. How does it rank against All Star? 
you know what? It's good. Like I'm not joking. This is this is a good <laughs> cover. It's instead of the scat solo, they do like a scratching solo and they mix in no loads way. of like samples of dialogue from the original movie. Honestly, like check it out. Check out I Wanna Be Like You by Smash Mouth. That is incredible. I, I didn't know that existed. I needed to know that existed. So this movie had a theatrical release, like Return to Neverland. This wasn't technically straight to video, but it was animated by Disney Toon Studio, who were like the kind of backup guys who made things like the director video sequels. Who's in this? John Goodman is Baloo. Oh, that's pretty good. I guess that attracts... Makes sense. I think with this, this was my version of people in the 60s saying like, oh, but I'm just seeing Phil Harris because it's not, if it was someone I didn't know doing a Phil Harris impression, I'd be like, oh, that's Baloo. But it's John Goodman and he sounds like John Goodman, who I know really, really well um, for being a complete legend. So I was just kind of a little bit distracted by that. Uh, Haley Joel Osment was Mowgli, which is part of a trend of all the Indian characters being voiced by white actors. Unfortunately, Phil Collins is in this. Phil Collins plays a vulture. And I looked, I was like, did Phil Collins write the songs if he's in the movie? And he didn't. No. (laughs) We don't want his music, we just want his comedy chops. Tarzan was enough. He plays a comedy cockney vulture who, like, roasts Shere Khan. So this movie is about Shere Khan, like, recovering from the embarrassment of... Mowgli getting the better of him and he's he's after Mowgli again for revenge but he's constantly beset by this Phil Collins vulture who's like basically roasting them, making like little little gags about how much of a coward he is for getting beaten by a man cub, etc. So they couldn't use King Louis as previously mentioned because they were scared of his wife. <laughs> And so you get a little bit of Baloo's life in the jungle without Mowgli, where he's made a fake Mowgli out of a coconut to talk to. Oh, that is bleak. <laughs> that has a really sad edge to it. I don't want that to be the future that, that Baloo is going back to when he walks back into the jungle at the end of the yeah, jungle. Yeah, it sounds like That's... Castaway or something, like he's talking to Wilson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mowgli! You get, you get the implication that he's just going to hang out with Bagheera and have more fun, but no, he's like... He's addicted to Mowgli, and he tries to break back into the village. Bagheera and the elephants have a whole protocol for when Baloo tries to get into the village, and they do, like, Operation Baloo or whatever, and they've got to stop him. It's really quite bleak, and you get... This is, like, a bit of a retread of the first one, though, in terms of its its overall plot, because Shere Khan's still the baddie. Mowgli basically decides he's bored of people, and he runs back to the jungle to be with Baloo. And then he meets Car, and then he meets the monkeys, and then... Car meets Shere Khan, and you get that scene again, and the the reprise the bare necessities like four times, and they also sing the bare necessities like four times in the first movie, which seems like a real f u to the guy who wrote that song and then got kicked off the movie. Like they get so much material out of the bare necessities. Yeah, it's whatever. It doesn't really capture the feel of the original for me. It's it ah, it's poor. Don't bother with it. And before we talk about the John Favreau version. Am I right in thinking there was like a 90s live action-ish version that predates the sort of current trend of live action stuff? Yes, there was. It was the first live action remake or quote unquote remake that they did. It was directed by Stephen Summers of The Mummy. And it has that vibe. Like, if you like The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, this is the same kind of tone it was before that. But it's, I don't know, I like this. So it's not really a remake. It's Mowgli as an adult. So he's basically Tarzan. Like, if you make Mowgli an adult, he's Tarzan, right? So he hangs about in the jungle with these animals, sometimes, like, fighting predators and stuff. And he gets found 
by basically this Jane figure, this this girl played by Lena Headey, who lives in this very late 1800s colonial version of like an Indian city where the Indian people are sort of quote unquote coexisting with the, the colonizers. Um, you've also got John Cleese is here, Sam Neill is here as Lena Headey's dad. And you've got Carrie Elwes, who plays the villain of the piece, who's like a, a suitor of Lena Hades, and he's also after the treasure that's in the jungle, which is something that they've taken from the deleted Bill Pete script. Right. It's that. He wants to go to the Monkey City and get the treasure, and he needs to manipulate Mowgli for that. So a lot of it's Mowgli trying to integrate into colonial British society, and it becomes a love story like a, a real Edwardian love story between Mowgli and, and the Lena Headey character, who I keep calling that because I cannot remember her name. And it's it's kind of fun. There's some great action scenes. It's all real animals. And the thing about me is I love animals in movies. As long as they're being treated okay, and in the 90s it seems like they would be, and it's got the no animals were harmed in the making of this thing. I just love watching animals. I love bears. I really love bears. I like monkeys a lot. Um, they don't talk in this. And when they don't talk, it's a bit harder to suspend your disbelief in, like, for example, the fact that, okay, so the tiger wants to eat them, but the panther's his mate. It's like, why? <laughs> why don't they all want to eat them? But yeah, it's good. It's good. But, right, okay. So the thing about this is, right, there's a story behind this, behind my experience of this movie, which is that I read a bit about it before I watched it. I heard that, okay, the animals don't talk. It's a little bit more darker and action-based and that. And it's Stephen Summers. So I'm like, all right, I'm looking forward to this. I sat down with my big bag of crisps and my can of Coke, and I booted up the live-action remake of The Jungle Book on Disney+, Plus, right? Except the live-action remake of The Jungle Book on Disney+, Plus is not this live-action remake. It's a different 90s live-action remake of The Jungle Book by Disney. So there's what? three. There's been three live-action Jungle Books by Disney, right? Wait, and so, so the Stephen Summers one is not on Disney+. Plus. That's not on Disney+, Plus. but what is on Disney+, Plus is the Jungle Book Mowgli story, a straight-to-video live-action Jungle Book from 1998, right? So I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, oh, this is in, like, a square aspect ratio. What's going on with that? I'm thinking, is it, like, the past is in square, and then the present is in widescreen? Is it, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel? Are they, like, playing around <laughs> with it? No, I'm watching a straight-to-video movie, which is the Jungle Book, but with the tone of, like, a crap 90s family sitcom. And the animals all have excruciating voices. So again, it's real animals. But the voices are all like, oh, hey, hiya, Mowgli, and all of that. It's horrible. <laughs> You've got Eartha Kit is Bagheera, which is good. Oh, okay. Well, like Eartha Kit, that's yeah. solid. Baloo, right, is played by Bill Murray's brother. <laughs> oh, okay. Bill Murray's brother, Brian Murray, plays Baloo in this, and... This was horrible. This is one of the worst films I've seen in ages. It was absolute <laughs> trash. What, so for an example of the kind of level of comedy we're dealing with here, Shere Khan's always talking about how he wants to eat Indian food, by which he means Ooh. Indian people. And then oh, when the wolves find Mowgli and they're, they're adopting him and they're like, oh, what should we name him? And one of the wolves goes, I think we should name him Pee Pee Poo Poo. Oh, that's the level that we're operating on. Yeah, that's the, that's the level of this that's movie. The bar. Oh, and then at the end, when Mowgli's about to go into the man village, he finds like a book with like stories in about or like like information about animals and stuff, and he says, "Huh, must be some kind of jungle, jungle book. book." Yay! Cut to credits. <laughs> it's the Leonardo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood meme. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So that was horrible. Don't watch Jungle Book Mowgli's story on 
Disney Plus, watch The Jungle Book with Lena Headley and John Clays and Sam Neill for like two quid on, on Amazon. That's what you do. And do you know what you should also watch? The John Favreau recent, I'm going to use this phrase because I know it's going to set Sam on fire, live action Jungle <laughs> Book, um, which I, I, is really good. I think it's definitely upper tier of the recent Disney uh, remakes. It's just I know that calling it live action definitely gets Sam's hackles up. Well, there's a person in this, okay? This isn't the same as calling the Lion King remake live action when that it's it's completely animated, right? This is everything's animated apart from the kid, which is like, okay, if you want to call it live action, there's some merit to that, I think. I like it. It's good. Love it. Uh, it's got the same score at the start. So it immediately hooks me in with that. It's got scary Christopher Walken... King Louis throwing papayas at, at Mowgli. It's weird when he sings. I, re- I went back and watched mm-hmm. the scene where he's trying to intimidate Mowgli, basically like a mob boss, and then he suddenly breaks into, now don't try to kid me, man, cub. It's like, why is he singing now? That was Christopher Walken. It's not one of my best impressions. ubi do. I want to be like, yo. It's like, why is he saying ubi do? He's trying to intimidate. It doesn't make sense when they break into song in that it's it's not a musical, so it's like... Why is he singing? It's like if... So you know the scene with Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper in True Romance, right? That kind of really tense interrogation scene. Imagine if he broke into song in the middle of that. It'd be it'd be odd. Got a couple of ooby-doos in there. But I think the casting in this is like one of the best things about it. Like, So little shout out to Neil Sethi, who plays Mowgli and I think is, is really good in the film. But Bill Murray as Baloo is just like, that is perfect. That makes Spot so on. much sense. Puts Brian to shame. <laughs> <laughs> Idris Elba is Shere Khan, like he really cranks it up in that role. Scarlett Johansson is Carr, and yeah, I, I I like Christopher Walken's King Louis, despite the slightly weird singing. And for me, one of the best things about it is that the animated version is really chilled out. It's a very laid back movie. This one, they basically turn it into a chase movie. There is like a sense of peril the whole way through. It's just like the entire jungle is out to get Mowgli. And uh, he's basically having to like leg it from anything that moves because it all wants to eat him or kill him or learn the secrets of man's red fire. For me, it's one of the best Disney live action versions because it is doing something totally different. It makes a case for its own existence. And it takes, like, the best quality of the book, which is this sense of majesty and awe and respect for the jungle. And, like, the elephants in this are so cool. The elephants aren't, like, comedy Sergeant Blimp blustery colonels in this. They are this really majestic, like, force, which we're told they basically created the jungle and all the animals have such reverence for them. And they come in at the end to put the fire out and those those elephant scenes are beautiful. John, what do you make of this live-action one? Well, I mean, I know what you were saying, Sam, about the, how they're just sort of breaking into song. I, I kind of felt like they didn't need the songs in this one. It felt like they were having their cake and eating it a, a little bit. You know, Favreau was obviously going for this kind of photorealist CGI that's almost like a David Attenborough documentary or something. It's very like grounded and, and realistic. And I wish they had the courage of the convictions to stick with that and maybe make it slightly more sort of feel like a, it's somehow real and cut the ties with the animated film because it is it does have a very different feel to that film and i don't think you need songs in a film like this yeah if you were watching this and you'd never seen the original and you'd somehow never heard that song right which should be what you make these movies for right you should be including that audience as well then it would be like what is this and they include christopher walken singing that in the credits 
which is a delight. And it's like, that, that would have been enough. I think you can leave bare necessities because that kind of fits with this version of Baloo still. But when you're trying to make this like a really tense, scary scene, the song is weird. Okay, so there are a couple of TV shows, animated TV shows, spun off of this movie. First of all, I really want to find out if you guys are already aware of this. Does the name Tailspin mean anything to you? Tailspin, 90s cartoon, Jungle Book. Yes, I've got vague, like you've just triggered something in my head. This is Baloo is like a pilot or something. Yep, that's Tailspin. So <laughs> they came up with the idea. This is like, I cannot begin to put myself in the mindset of the person who came up with this idea, right? It's the Jungle Book. It's some of the characters from the Jungle Book in a 1930s, like, real-world setting loosely based on that of Casablanca. <laughs> okay? Why does this keep coming back to Casablanca? <laughs> <laughs> so, King Louis is, like, the Rick Blaine character, and he owns this island nightclub in a neutral zone outside of US jurisdiction where all the pilots and criminals and stuff hang out. Baloo is our protagonist. He is a crack pilot who flies a cargo plane and he gets himself caught up in loads of wild, like, sort of Indiana Jones-style capers fighting various air-based criminals and getting into adventures. Shere Khan is a corrupt business executive who's trying to put Baloo out of business, right? And that's basically the extent of the Jungle Book characters. Everyone else is a new character, but everyone else, I can't stress enough, is an animal. For example, there's a version of Howard Hughes in this, who's a hippo called Howard Huge. <laughs> oh, that is pretty solid punning. Right? But then also, we're in the 1930s, so these characters reference the Great War, which happened like a decade ago, okay? These characters are aware of the events of World War One. That happened. There was a Jungle Book World War One with animals. <laughs> Okay, in this universe. Perhaps Baloo is a veteran, I don't know, I haven't seen it. So, there is also a version, they weren't allowed to include Nazis, okay? That was a no-no, we can't do Nazis. But we can do Stalin's Soviet Union, which in this is populated by warthogs. All the Russians are warthogs. (laughs) Okay. I mean, none of this makes sense. It's so mad. I mean, just look at, like, the character designs, and it's, like, King Louis in this, like, Hawaiian shirt get up, and, like, again, very much my vibe, but it's, like, it's very much Bermuda Merlin is King Louis's <laughs> outfit. Shea Khan in, like, a full suit. It's crazy. That's not on Disney+, Plus, at least not in the UK, so I'm going to have to check some of that out on YouTube. But one that I did watch when I was a kid from 1996 is Jungle Cubs. You seen Jungle Cubs? No, I mean, presumably, is this the whole Jungle Book gang as babies? It's the Muppet Babies route? Absolutely, that's what it is. So it's it's everybody. It's Baloo, Bagheera, Hathi, Louie, Carr, and Shere Khan. And they're all a gang. They're all really good mates. And they all hang out in, like, the temple. And, I mean, sometimes they have an argument. Like, Shere Khan is, like, he's a bit rascally. And he's a bit of a bad boy. But he's really good mates. With every, like, Carr and, like, Baloo and Bagheera are really good mates. And you do get that sense when you watch the movie that everyone's kind of aware of each other in this ecosystem. Like, Baloo and Bagheera know who each other are before they meet in the movie. But you do not get the sense that they all had this, like, stand-by-me style gang. And what I want to see, which they never made, is the ending of Jungle Cubs. I want to see this very melancholy story where they all drift apart and outgrow each other, like Richard Linklater kind of movie, where they all decide to go their separate ways. Or you watch it back to back with the actual Jungle Book and it's like It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. You return to them as adults. There you go. (laughs) Very good. 
Okay, so that is cartoons out the way. We're blasting through this. Ben, earlier you said that you really wanted to just stay in the rhythm of this movie and get into the rhythm of this movie. And if you wanted to do that, you could do a lot worse than the Jungle Book Groove Party, which is a dance mat video game for the PlayStation 1. Oh, I mean, everybody loved a dance mat back in the day. So you go through the story of the Jungle Book and you dance along to all the songs, except it's just I Want to Be Like You and The Bare Necessities and all the other songs are new because you can't really dance to the barbershop or the, like, car. They're all singing these really weird, hastily written 90s pop songs and the vultures have this, like, madness-style scar <laughs> number, <laughs> which is quite cool. The kind of your prize for playing through the story is you get a dance to a version of I Wanna Be Like You by Lou Bega. Oh, no awesome. That's cool. I'm going to stick that on the playlist next to, what was it, the Smash Mouth the Bare Smash Necessities. Mouth. No, it's the Smash Mouth I Want to Be Like You. Everyone's doing that song. Oh, wow. And then, of course, there was a Hard as Nails platformer for the Sega Genesis, which we're not going to talk about. All, all Disney movies had to have a Hard as Nails platformer for the Sega Genesis. Right, so finally, there is so much Jungle Book material, guys. Finally, we have arrived in Disneyland, in the Disney parks. Not a great deal of Jungle Book stuff. You've got Baloo and King Louie as walk-around characters. You've got Colonel Hathi's pizza outpost in Disneyland Paris. I mean, no character in this screams pizza like Colonel Hathi, <laughs> right guys? If you want to have a pizza that tastes like it was made by an elderly elephant, then check out Colonel Hathi's pizza outpost. Served on an ivory plate, perhaps. Oh, no! <laughs> no, definitely oh. not. Oh, no. <laughs> But there was a very short-lived live show in Florida in Disney's Animal Kingdom called Journey Into the Jungle Book, where they're basically doing a bridged version of the movie starring humans, but not in your classic Disney, like, full-body walk-around costumes, starring humans made up to look like the characters from the Jungle Book, and it's cats. It's cats. It looks like cats. The the costumes are inspired clearly by cats, and it's horrible to look at. It's cats. I cannot wait to see the pictures of that. When you put them on our Twitter, they Which have to I go up there. Will, yeah. Oh wow. That actually sounds great. I don't know <laughs> Don't know what the issue sounds is. Sounds at least two stars. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the uh the Tom Hooper directed film adaptation of this stage show. <laughs> With Ray Winston as blue. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> get Idris Elba back as Shake On. Oh he, yeah. He's always up for that. And that is it for this week's class. John, thank you so much for joining us. Have you enjoyed your trip into the jungle with Disneyversity? Oh, I've had a blast. Thank you so much. I've been taking notes all lesson. So, uh, yeah, I'm ready for the test. Nice. And most of those notes presumably were, Bill Pete, boo! (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, there's lots of booing. We don't see Bill Pete again. He ran into the jungle with his tail on fire like Shere Khan. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder who put that fire there, eh, Sam? (laughs) (laughs) If only there was someone with a famous grudge against him. Again, the estate of Bill Pete. I can't apologise enough. And and John, where can people find you online? Where can people find your stuff? Uh, online, uh, you can intermittently find me on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Underscore Nugent. But uh, more regularly, you can find me in the pages of Empire Magazine, where I am news editor and I write all sorts of rubbish for them. 
every month in all good and evil news agents. Yes. And hard as it is to believe, this is, as we said, Sam, the end of the Bangers era. It's come around so soon. What an amazing selection of movies this has been. Like, all these outright Disney classics. And Sword in the Stone. And the Sword in the Stone. <laughs> yeah, the, the outlier, <laughs> we will say. But yeah, these huge princess movies, these really cute animal adventures, these big lavish fantasy films, iconic villains, earworm songs. It's been a total trip. But what that does mean is that our next episode is going to be our study group digging further into the death of Walt Disney, the changes that that brought to the studio, uh, as well as totting up our favourite films of the Bangers era, updating our Disney rankings and all of that stuff. So that's going to be the next episode. Keep an eye out for that in your pod feeds. And the other thing to mention is we're going to take a short break before the next era, the Dark Ages, begins. So it's nothing too long but a chance to catch our breaths, appreciate the bare necessities of life before returning with some stranger, darker Disney movies, more special guests and much more Disney goodness. Uh, And in the meantime though, we should have another exciting extra bonus episode to keep you all going. So study group exciting bonus episode and then we'll be back a little bit down the line with the uh, next era of Disneyversity we'll be back before you can wish upon a star that's the plan for the next few weeks then and if you've enjoyed this episode please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating we'll sign you up for an all expenses paid river cruise with our good pal Baloo all the ants you can eat, all the sing-alongs you could sing along to, the whole shebang for now, though, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. I'm off to take a, a really cold shower. That's not a reference to the Jungle Book or anything. I'm, I'm just very warm. It's just jungle temperatures today as we record this. Uh, it's goodbye from John. Goodbye. I'm off to watch the, uh, what's it called? Flying Squad tune? Tailspin. Tailspin. <laughs> I need to binge Tailspin now. And it's goodbye from me. I am in personal Tailspin after hearing of all the craziness happening in the wider Jungle Book universe. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.